everyone. It is your host, Zoe Blasky, and welcome back to Motherkind, the show that's going to help you navigate the massive challenges of motherhood with more self-awareness, ease, joy, and purpose. Here's a question for you. How do you feel about your relationship with alcohol? Big question, isn't it? Because especially in our society, alcohol is basically everywhere. It is so ingrained in how we live. And as we cover in this episode, drinking is completely normalized, especially in motherhood. Kat Sims, who you might know as Not So Smug Now, runs the really popular blog of the same name and has recently published her first book, The First Time You Smiled, which is a baby record journal with attitude. She is also a year sober. And that's what we talk about today because I am also 10 years sober, which is mind blowing to me. Do not ask me where the last 10 years have gone. And we have a shared love of the 12 steps, which is a recovery process used in Alcoholics Anonymous, which you've probably heard of, but also in Al-Anon, which is the 12-step group that I've been in for over 15 years now. We talk about how she went from denying there was a problem with alcohol to proudly calling herself an alcoholic without shame. She shares the moment she knew she had to get help and how it felt being newly sober when the world around her was still drinking I hope however you feel about your drinking, you'll take something from this beautiful and very honest conversation. Here it is. I'm really, really, really excited to chat to you for tons of reasons, but mainly because I am incredibly passionate about sobriety and 12 steps. I'm always so excited to speak to someone who's made that transition, particularly, you know, within the last year, because I feel like it's just an incredible time, that early recovery. Do you know, it's so interesting because I'm obviously just over a year. I was a year on November the 26th. Congratulations. That's massive. That is massive. They say the first year is the hardest year. Obviously, I don't know because I haven't done any other years. But what I found is I think I've really benefited from doing it now. I mean, I think there is an element of sobriety that is now much more widely accepted to a certain extent, a little bit cooler. You know, we've got the generation behind us, sort of the young ones who really are not drinking like we drank. So I think I've really benefited from that. You know, I've really been able to kind of embrace that a little bit, which has taken away some of the shame and made me able to talk about it. I think in being able to talk about it, it's made that first year for me easier. Yeah. You know, shame is sort of very close sibling of addiction, isn't it? Any behavior that you feel is something that you don't want to be doing, shame is just always with it, I think. Yeah, I'd say it was a comorbidity. I don't think you can be an addict and not suffer very severe shame in some way, shape and form. And some of that shame, you know, it's Brené Brown who distinguishes between guilt and shame. And she's like, guilt is I did a bad thing and shame is I am a bad person. I think sometimes we mistake the two and shame serves no purpose at all. It serves no purpose apart from a very negative one. It further impacted by the stigma, I think, that is attached specifically to the word alcoholic. And I have to really be very careful because I sometimes find myself describing me as an addict in a blanket term. I am an addict too, as in, you know, I had a drug problem too. But somehow 
addict is a little bit more palatable than alcoholic. And I always have to remind myself to also say I'm an addict and an alcoholic because I don't ever want to convey shame. And I think that shame really stops people from reaching out for help especially when it comes to the 12 steps, because people have a problem with alcohol. The first place they think of is Alcoholics Anonymous, but they may not be ready to identify as an alcoholic. So they assume that Alcoholics Anonymous isn't for them or they avoid it. And that's so sad because having worked the program, I mean, I'm like step nine, it's the most incredible program. And if me calling myself an alcoholic openly and publicly encourages or at least gives space to people to investigate that as a possibility and Alcoholics Anonymous as a possibility, then I'm all for it. A hundred percent. And I'm so excited to dive into the steps and to sort of demystify some of it because it does feel like a huge mystery to a lot of people. Tell me about, I was going to say when you first knew you had a problem, but my experience of this is that there'll be many moments (laughs) when that realization come to you, but what was the difference when you did get into AA and got sober and have been able to stay sober? Like you say, there were many, 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 many experiences and times where anybody would, from the outside looking in would go, well, that was your rock bottom, right? And it wasn't. My actual rock bottom was quite high. Basically, I was waking up every single morning at 4am with debilitating panic attacks. And it was on the dot of four every single morning. And I couldn't deal with it. And I also knew it was the drink. I knew it was the drink because that was what was consuming my every waking thought. I wasn't drinking in the mornings. I wasn't hiding booze around the house. I didn't hide it in my coffee cup, but I was drinking at least a bottle, if not two bottles of wine a night. I always say I wasn't hiding it, but I was often waiting till Jimmy went to bed to drink the second bottle. And that's the bottle that I would take directly out to the main bins. I wouldn't put it in the usual bin because then he'd see it. So I was hiding it in some ways. And for me, when I look back on those things that happened to me, I mean, there were some really horrific things, you know, we're talking like sexual attacks and things that happened in blackout, all of that stuff. That somehow wasn't enough because I think there's addicts and, and alcoholics suffer from such a severe lack of self-worth and self-esteem that while I was just putting myself in danger, that didn't really matter. It was when I was putting my kids in danger and when I was putting my relationship with my husband in danger. And also, I suppose, when the effect of my drinking was starting to become apparent on the people that relied on me, so my parents and my kids. But that was at the moment when the panic attack started and that was the moment where I, I went into the rooms you know, but I've woken up after some horrific things and thought, well, I'm never going to drink again. And of course, you know, I did. But I think that's quite normal. You know, I don't think we know. Sometimes you can go out in a blaze of glory, but sometimes it's something very small that is the final straw. And when you talk about that link between shame and low self-worth and drinking, I guess through, you know, you would have done your step four, which for anyone listening who doesn't know what that is, it's really when you have to sift through your entire life and essentially look for patterns and start to understand, I think, what landscape you're working with on the inside and how that might have caused you to end up in these patterns of, you know, I really see them as like coping or self-soothing patterns, but they're just destructive. So having done that, what did you find? It was so interesting because obviously step four is 
just a mammoth task. You know, it is. And I remember being terrified of it. And I know lots of people in the program sort of put step four off for as long as they possibly can. But actually, I found it to be, once I did it, inevitably, it was hands down the single most useful thing I've done in my entire life in or outside of addiction. What I discovered was that my life was colored by a fear and a belief that I was different and weird because I felt like I couldn't connect. I mean, I grew up as an only child. I do have brothers and sisters, but they're half brothers and sisters and they never lived with me. So I grew up on my own. I didn't grow up with those strong sibling bonds. You know, my parents are wonderful, but they are very much from that kind of era where kids are just left to get on with themselves. It wasn't like snuggles in the sofa and let's watch a movie together. They showed me love through achievements. So when I was successful, when I won swimming meets or when I smashed a PB or scored an A, then I got that kind of love and validation. And so it was just a very difficult upbringing in that I just didn't know how to connect and I didn't really know who I was or what I liked. And in my desperation to connect with people, I turned into this expert chameleon. And even now, you know, I am very, very intuitive and that really helps. As soon as somebody walks in a room, I can mirror. I know exactly who they need me to be, what they want me to be, what I can say, what I can't say, how to make them laugh, all of that stuff. For all of my adult life, that's how I operated because that's how I thought you connected with people. But all that did is just left me almost feeling like I was living this constant lie. And this wasn't always a conscious decision. It's only now I look back on it and I see that discomfort that I had with myself and that disease and all of that. And it's really empowering to suddenly unpick all those things and know that you're not just a bad person or you're not a broken person, but that actually there's a reason why you are the way you are. And it doesn't have to be trauma with a capital T. You know, it can be little t trauma. I remember one thing very, very clearly where I was at boarding school. I went to boarding school at 11, also probably a huge impact on my addiction. And there was one time when one of the dads decided, because there was quite a few of us from our area that was going back up to the Lake District, which is where I went to school. One of the dads decided that to make everybody's life easier, he'd hire a minibus and then he'd just drive us all up in one go. And I remember thinking, no, I don't want to do that. Like, listen, I'm already at boarding school. The least you can fucking do is drive me back to school. Like, it's an hour and a half. It's not the end of the world. And I remember, I was like, you know, if you try and put a cat in the bath, like, and I just remember being like that, not wanting to get on this minibus. I was 11 and being just pushed onto this and screaming. And like, that's not capital T trauma. Like that's not... It's not far off. Well, maybe it is, but it's like the teacher that called me a groaner when I was practicing in quiet, not capital T trauma, but enough to like really damage my self-belief and feelings of self-worth and self-esteem. And I think we are taught so often to play that stuff down and to not make a big deal out of it. And what step four did for me was really, they ask you to write down every resentment you've ever had since the day that you can ever remember. And so you do it in like, my sponsor was like, go from like naught, ages naught to five, think of as many as you can, six to 10, 11 to 15, go through it all like that. So you're coming up with like ridiculous things like, you know, so-and-so copied my work in primary school. You go from that right up to this guy forced himself on me and I didn't give him consent. It's the whole breadth. But 
the beauty of doing that means that the patterns emerge, like you say. And mine were all to do with relationships. I discovered that I had a habit of very quickly latching on to a person. Like if we clicked and we connected, then that was kind of like on a friendship level, we would be best friends immediately. And that worked for a while until, of course, it didn't. My expectations of what that meant were obviously unattainably high. And therefore, we ended up, you know, those friendships would crash and burn. That was really interesting for me to see. You know, I'd spent a lot of time blaming other people for abandoning me. And actually, I had to recognize my part in that, which was I can have unreasonably high expectations of people. So, yeah, step four is one of those things because obviously, you know, actually not drinking, actually stopping drinking, that's the first bit, that's the entryway. That's the first thing you do when you've done that, that's done. You haven't even started the steps at that point. The steps are so much more than not drinking. I just think everybody should do the steps. Well, the steps to me, and I've been in Al-Anon for nearly 15 years, and I've been sober 10, is a way of life. It is a way of living. It's a program for living, which is where essentially I take complete responsibility for myself, my actions, my own happiness, what I'm doing, what I'm putting out in the world. It is so misunderstood. When I speak to friends about it who don't know about it, they're like, well, don't you just sit in like a cold church hall and sort of, you know, it's like, yes, it is often cold. It is often in a church hall, but it's also unbelievable you know, and it's not about war stories or sort of drunkologues or anything like that. But I think people listening are always fascinated because they want to, in a way, compare their own experience with drinking. So did you start drinking young and did you always drink what you would now look back and see as alcoholically? Yes, to both those questions. But also just quickly on the topic of war stories, I know it's a term that's often used in meetings. People like, I'm not going to go back through the war stories. When I was early in recovery, I needed the war stories. I would lap up those war stories. I needed to hear how other people had fucked up as well. Because that, A, was really important for me to recognize that these things are not just normal. These are war stories. You know what? These are actually war stories. These are not just funny, drunken anecdotes. These are war stories. And also, you know, when I do chairs in meetings, when I'm sort of the speaker in a meeting, I do share some of my war stories because I need to remind myself on the daily about those things because otherwise the voice in my head will always say, you're not really an alcoholic. You won't drink in the morning. Therefore, you can drink now. You can moderate now. And then I have to remember that when my baby was six months old, I was alone in my house and my friend came over and we drank until I, I mean, I was in blackout and I woke up in the morning and I went to get her from her cot when she was crying. She wasn't in her cot, you know, and in blackout, I had gone and sometimes probably picked her up, maybe even fed her. God only knows. I'd left her on the spare bed. And, but for the grace of God, she was fine. I have to remind myself of that because otherwise I know that my addiction will make me pick up another drink at some point. So the war stories while there is sort of this possibility of like veering off into like disclosure porn, if you like, I think it is really important to share them and to keep them in your own mind and to speak of them in obviously safe spaces or places that you feel safe in. Because I think a lot of people pass off quote unquote war stories as drunken anecdotes. And actually, sometimes we need to like reframe them a little bit and see them for what they are. But 
I did start drinking very early, young age. I grew up in a very northern family. We all drank a lot. That's, again, how they showed love. That's how we had fun. There was never a Sunday lunch that didn't end in carnage. Nobody ever just enjoyed a quiet drink. It was bottles and bottles and bottles and bottles of wine. Somebody would be puking. Somebody would be in the bush. And my dad would decide to try on a gold sequin thong that he got for his 50th and show us all. And it was a lot of fun. That's the thing. It was a lot of fun. And a lot of my drinking, even though it was all kind of alcoholically motivated, I guess, was actually a lot of fun. And I blacked out for the first time when I was 13. And I woke up in the morning and I'd puked on the side of my bed. And my dad came in and we had to get up at like six in the morning for a family thing. And I was like, I'm not going, I'm ill, blah, 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 blah. And my dad went, you're not ill, you're hungover, you get up and you carry on with what you're supposed to be doing. And that was the lesson. The lesson wasn't you're 13 years old, why have you drank to blackout and puked on your bed? The lesson was, if this is what you're going to do, you get up and you carry on. And from that day on, no matter how bad my hangover was, I got up And I did what I was supposed to do. And I thought that meant that I was okay at drinking. Nowadays, I think if one of my daughters was 13 and there was puke all over a bed, I'd be like, right, you are never leaving the house again. (laughs) Do you know? I mean, it's just baffling, isn't it? But it is a different generation. And I know that probably there's lots of people in my family that drink alcoholically as I would suggest. And nobody's really prepared to admit it, you know, and that all comes with hiding the fact that their daughters are drinking in a very unhealthy way, they don't want to admit that because then that might mean that they'd have to like acknowledge perhaps their own unhealthy drinking habits. But throughout that time, I just always drank and I had a really good time. I was a good fun drunk. I never got angry or cross. I didn't throw things, didn't get into trouble. I didn't cry. I didn't cause problems. I was just fun. The only problem was that once I started, nobody knew including me, when I was ever going to stop. And in my early days before I discovered drugs, I stopped when I blacked out at some point and found myself asleep. I don't even remember how I stopped, but my body obviously would shut down. And I just thought everybody blacked out when they were drunk. Like I thought everybody lost their memory. Like we talk about that, I've got no idea what happened last night. That's not normal. But very normalized. Very normalized. And I remember hearing that in a meeting and going, it's not normal to blackout. It's actually one of the signs, isn't it, of alcoholic drinking is blackout. It is. And I was reading something the other day. It's not that you can't remember. It's that actually your brain has stopped making memories. Those memories never existed. Like you will never, ever, no matter how much hypnotherapy or regret or anything like that, once you're in blackout, that's it. That time has gone. And so when I think about the things that I know happened to me during blackout, and then I think about the things that I have no idea that happened to me during blackout, that terrifies me. You know, and I can't think about it too much because you'll drive yourself crazy. But if you are blacking out, that is a problem. And, you know, realizing that so much of my drinking had been normalized. And learning that and unlearning what was normal and what wasn't was bonkers to me. Well, we live in a society, don't we, where we drink to celebrate, we drink to commiserate, we just drink, it completely normalised to drink at any occasion, at any time. It's fascinating. But it is weird because we are the only, well, we're not the only nation, you know, I'd suggest maybe Australians, New Zealanders are the same, but I think they can probably blame us for that as well, seeing as we colonised them stole all their land. It's fine. We'll move on. 
But look at the French and the Italians. Alcohol plays a huge role in their society, but they don't have this same binge drinking culture that we've curated over here. And you're right, it's so normalized. The other thing is lots of people actually can drink responsibly. The majority of people can actually spend the rest of their life drinking wine or anything in a very healthy way. And I always worry about demonizing alcohol. For me, it's a poison and I'm highly allergic to it and it's not me and alcohol do not mix. But actually a lot of people can drink it responsibly. And so I'm not one of these people that's like, it's a poison and you should definitely give it up and blah, blah, blah. People can make their own decisions on that. All I do know is that I've never met anybody who gave up booze and then went, oh, my life went to shit. Yes. Giving up drinking for me. I mean, I was in recovery, yeah, nearly five years before I decided to stop drinking. Even then, it just completely changed my life. And I wasn't someone who was you know, I don't call myself an alcoholic. Alcohol just started getting in the way of the type of life that I wanted to live, like the spiritual life that I was on the path of, just kept getting in the way. But what I find fascinating about alcohol is it's the only drug that you have to justify not taking. And I know so many people will be listening to this, particularly, you know, in January, we're going to put this out. Lots of people will be thinking, I want to give the booze a break for January. But they get so worried about, and I get it, God parties, you know, the pressure from friends, the whole mum mate drinking thing. I've just moved area about 18 months ago. And it's really interesting how many new people I'll meet. I'll be like, I'll bring a bottle of wine around. Let's go for a drink, a glass of, you know, and I say to people, I don't drink. And some people are like, great, we'll go for coffee. Some people genuinely I've never heard from again. Yeah. I probably would have been one of those people. Oh, cat, we wouldn't have been friends just because I was sober. I know, but that's how batshit crazy my addiction was because I only wanted to surround myself with people that made it look normal. I don't want to hang out with you because you would have made me look like the alcoholic that I truly was, but not yet ready to confront. And I used to say things like, oh, I don't trust people who don't drink. I mean, it's bonkers. And I take full responsibility and accountability for that. I shall make amends later. But being open about being an alcoholic helps because I just go, I'm an alcoholic. So it's probably best that I don't drink that wine. I'm fine being around people who are drinking. Oh yeah, same. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't bother me at all. It doesn't bother me. In fact, I will go so far as to say, listen, I'll have a tonic water or something, but do you know what? I actually want it in a wine glass. Like I'll very happily just like, I'm not triggered by anything like that in any way, shape or form. And I can actually drink non-alcoholic stuff. And I know in AA, that's generally a big no-no. But for me, I do not find it triggering. And I don't binge drink those things. You know, I I know of people who go, well, I had non-alcoholic beers and I ended up drinking 16 of them. I don't do that. I'll have a couple of non-alcoholic beers and then I'll be like, you know, I'll have a cup of tea. I like the taste of the beer and the beer actually tastes good. I can enjoy it without the buzz. I don't have to get the buzz. That for me works, but for a lot of people it doesn't. And I think this is the other thing. Sobriety can look different in everybody. A quick word from this week's sponsor, Athletic Greens. I started taking AG1 from Athletic Greens 
because I wanted more energy and I wanted to look after my health more proactively. And I have got to say it has made a massive difference. It is a special blend of ingredients that supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus and aging, basically all the things. It is totally unsurprising to me that it has over 7,000 five-star reviews because it's amazing and even tastes nice. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. So all you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash motherkind. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash motherkind to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Back to the episode. Tell me about the first couple of parties or dinner parties or like mum meetups, because that's what people get so worried about is from going from like the party girl, maybe showing up with the Prosecco on the play date to suddenly same group of friends, same area, same life, but suddenly you are not partaking in that. Tell us about that. It is a difficult transition, but it's a transition that I realized I could manage. Like I was like, everybody's going to hate me, blah, blah, blah. And actually I was like, it's on me to find my place in this social kind of dynamic. Now, the first few times were awful. Like I'll admit they were. And I went out, I think the first time I went out, out, I went out for dinner with a friend and two of her friends who I'd met one before I hadn't met the other. And it was like a freebie dinner we'd been given basically. And it was boozy. And I ordered an outfit from ASOS for it. It was quite fancy that didn't turn up. So I had an absolute meltdown about like an absolute meltdown to the point where I had to call back the DPD lady and make an amends to her because I had legit like lost my shit. Because I realized it wasn't about the outfit. This was about I was going out for the first time. So what I did is I ended up buying a packet of cigarettes and I had always socially smoked, but I hadn't been a professional smoker. But I thought if I get cigarettes, then if I feel like I need a break or I need to get out and get some fresh air, it gives me like a way to get out without being weird. Like, cause just leaving the table and standing outside is weird, but like going out for a cigarette, slightly less weird. And at this point I was like, whatever it takes to get through the night without drinking, you know, and they say, let's deal with what's going to kill you first. And alcohol was definitely going to kill me first. Cigarettes I could deal with later. And so I went through the first couple of parties, absolutely smoking my socks off basically. And before long, I knew that I had a cross addiction and I was soon on 20 cigarettes a day. So I wouldn't necessarily advise that. I have now given up. Well done. That's massive as well. Well, I say given up. I have given up buying them and I only have one if somebody else happens to be there and have one and then I can have one and walk away. I'm all right with that. It is what it is. One thing at a time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so those first few social events were really hard and I felt like it wasn't ever going to be fun again. And I felt like I wasn't ever going to be fun again. You know, I was funny when I was drunk. It took me ages to realize I'm funny when I'm not drunk. I just didn't know it. I just didn't believe it. I just thought I needed the drink to be funny. There is a transition period and I don't want anybody to give up drinking and think that it's just, you know, you're going to live a life beyond your wildest dreams right from the start. That's not the case. You've spent however many years, in my case, almost 30 years building up social habits that rely on you being lubricated in some way. And unlearning that takes time. And figuring out who you are socially takes time. I also discovered there was loads of things that I thought I really liked 
but I actually didn't like. I used to think my favorite thing was to have a Sunday roast in the pub. Now I'm like, no, my favorite thing is to have a Sunday roast at home in my pajamas while I'm watching crappy movies. But doing it in the pub meant that I could legitimately drink at lunchtime. And it was all these weird things that came up. You know, I don't like staying out late, not because I'm boring, but because actually nothing good happens after midnight. That much I know is true. Nothing good happens after. I mean, maybe lots of fun stuff, but it's not good. And so now I'll leave at 11, 30, midnight. You know, sometimes I'll go out big, but I won't ever drink and I can always drive home. That's also a real plus. But also I've noticed the world is a much scarier place sober. And so I don't stay out late as much because when I used to like tumble home pissed from the tube, it didn't occur to me that I was walking alone in the streets in the middle of the night. Now I'm hyper aware because I'm sober. And so I do find I'm more cautious socially there as well. I tend not to put myself in positions where I might have to walk long distances in the dark late at night. But generally now, socializing is more fun than it was. That's how I feel exactly the same. A, I'm not waking up with that like anxiety and fear and shame. That's ultimately one of the reasons I stopped. I could not handle the anxiety the next morning. Even after one glass, I would still feel anxious. And I was like, I am worth more than feeling anxious when I wake up. It was more, I was anxious that like I'd said something or done something or who had I pissed off or who did I have to apologize to? And I was always like, have I got everything? No, I've almost certainly left a bank card somewhere. I've almost certainly not got a phone. All of these things and the stress and the panic and the worry and then the self-loathing and the shame and the fear and the embarrassment and all of that. I think that's what was manifested in the anxiety attacks. That was where it all boiled over. And it just became that step one is I admitted I was powerless over alcohol and my life had become unmanageable. My life at that point was unmanageable. I could not continue living my life with these panic attacks every morning at four, the stress of knowing what I was doing and the weight of always thinking about when I was going to have another drink and where I could manufacture another drink from. And I wouldn't have it in the morning, but you better know that in the morning, I would know exactly when I was going to have it. All of that taken off the table means that I can go out and I can really relax and I can really enjoy being social. I used to love long, lazy dinners where we just drank wine and chatted. I hate that now. I'm like, I've eaten, I'm bored, let's go. It's not that I don't like the company, but eventually, you know, when people start saying the same thing, you're like, we've had this conversation and fully you guys go ahead and enjoy it again. Knock yourself out. Totally. I'm going to head out and have a wonderful time. I would say that there are friendships I've got that haven't gone, but certainly aren't as active as they were. There were friendships where you know, we largely would drink and party together. Most of them are still great. We meet for coffee and we have a wonderful time and they're like my ride or dies. But there are a couple who I would have just partied with on the regular and that hasn't translated into a friendship much beyond that. I'm okay with that because we're still fine. It's not like there's bad feeling, but it's just an acceptance that that friendship wasn't as deep as the others. That's okay. Do you know what I mean? As long as you've got some friends, that's fine. But there are changes. And if you do give up drinking, if it's January and you, and you do want to give up drinking, there will be some changes. But the majority of those changes will be hugely, hugely positive. When I go through steps, I don't know if you found this, but I find a lot of the steps is actually very similar to kind of manifesting. 
I sort of hesitate in some ways to say that because I know a lot of people go, oh, manifesting, it's woo-woo and all the rest of it. And it is, but actually a lot of it is taking responsibility for your own role and path in this life. And that's largely what manifesting is. It's like, this is the vision point and this is how I'm going to get there. And everything I do, because it's in my head, is going to keep me there. And so the steps are in my head, sobriety is in my head, the just for today cards read every day, you know, all of that stuff. It helps keep me focused on what it is that I'm doing. And your vibe changes. The vibe you're giving out changes when you're sober. That's not woo-woo. That's a fact. I am a different person now that I'm sober. And so the things that come to me are also different, but they're better. Like they are the things that I really, really wanted, but had no idea how to get. Like I wouldn't have been on your podcast with 3 million downloads. I mean, that's incredible. If I was still a drunk, I wouldn't be there. I wouldn't have written a book. That wouldn't have happened because there's no way on God's green earth who would have hit that deadline. There are all these amazing things that happen. It's not magic. It's just the way it is when you're not fucked up all the time. And when you're not putting all of your energy into being hungover or thinking about drink or worrying about drink, you've got a lot more time and energy to make other shit happen. hundred percent. The other thing that I think the steps is that it's a daily practice. And so what I find just mind-blowing to me is that I really have this deep acceptance now that I have this brain, you know, I know where it's from, all that stuff that's just wired for fear, basically. My brain is wired for fear. Give me a situation. My default is to be petrified about it, (laughs) to want to like hide from it, not face it, run away. That is my default is to be afraid. Every day with the steps, I get to rewrite that default, which is just mind-blowing to me. And the default would be, well, what if I had a bit of faith here? What if I could trust that I could handle this situation? What if I could do this? And that, I tell you what, Kat, that one idea alone has enabled me to build up this podcast, you know, move to the sea from London, which was on our absolute dream. Like we've done so much and I've done so much just based on switching how scared I was of life into having trust in myself and a trust in life. Instead of feeling like everything's going to fall apart in any moment, which is how I used to live every single day. It's mind-blowing to me. I feel so passionate about that because it's quite simple, really. You have to do it daily. And like you say, it's a lifestyle, but fear, I think, is so... If you had to pin me down, I would say fear is at the root of everything in terms of addiction or any kind of negative behavior or patterns, to be honest, you know, and it manifests differently for me. And I think for a lot of addicts, fear comes out as ego, confidence, brashness for people who aren't addicts, but perhaps codependence, it comes out in real risk averseness, a lack of confidence going inside yourself, you know, but it's all the same thing. We're all scared of being rejected. We're all scared of messing up and being found out or something like that. And I think you know, when I was drinking, I would throw anybody under the bus to try and avoid taking accountability for a mistake. And it might have been the tiniest mistake in the world. It might have been something that like was just a genuine mistake. But I'd be like, well, it wasn't me. That was because of that. That's why that happened. And now I think, God, do you know what? I fucked up. I'm really sorry. I'm going to fix it. And that is so much better for your soul because every time I tried to avoid it, it stuck with me and it just lived in there and it just infected 
this sense of self because I just knew I wasn't being honest. And I used to think I'm not even a nice person. And even though people liked me and I, in my heart of hearts, I genuinely believed I was a horrible person. I wasn't, I was just terrified. I was terrified of being rejected because I'd got something wrong or because somebody didn't like me or I said the wrong thing. And when I realized that I was like, it's just not how the world works. You know, when you mess up, people don't hate you. People don't fall out of love with you. In fact, if anything, when you mess up and you say sorry, they like you more. And that was mind-blowing to me because I came from parents who never, ever apologized for anything. You know, nothing was ever, certainly not to me. And now, you know, learning that saying sorry is actually a really empowering thing and a really impressive thing that people really respond to has been a game changer. But I live my life differently now. I don't say things that I would have said before. I do things I wouldn't have done before. You know, I have to force myself to not be selfish. I'm an addict and an alcoholic. I am inherently incredibly selfish. And even if I'm not inherently incredibly selfish, that is the habit that I have built up over the years. And so I really have to force myself to not be selfish. You know, when I'm married, because I'm an addict, I I sort out somebody who's incredibly codependent because that works for me as an addict, because they go out of their way to make me feel better about myself. And so I can very easily allow my husband to take the brunt of the blame, the responsibility and the work. And he'll happily do it because he is always more focused on pleasing somebody else rather than himself. And he's working on that a lot and we work together. But those are our kind of base traits that we both have to really avoid falling into But that self-awareness would not have come to me if I didn't work the steps. And I've done therapy and I've done all of that. But actually, it was the steps that made me join the dots, essentially. And if someone is listening, thinking, well, these steps sound amazing, but I don't relate to being an alcoholic. There is a 12-step program for essentially anything that you might be struggling with. It's there? Yeah, anything. There's Tech Anonymous. There's Debtors Anonymous. There's Codependence Anonymous. There's even one called Food Overeaters. It's free. You can go along on Zoom often. You don't even have to go to a physical meeting. There's also PAN, actually, P-A-N Anonymous, which is if you don't fit into any one of those buckets, you can go to PAN, which is a catch-all. So funnily enough, I obviously knew that there were other fellowships, but when you said there's one for anyone, I was like, oh, there's just like a general 12-step. I'm just interested to see how this works. Well, that would be PAN. That's amazing. I didn't know that there was PAN. And actually, quite a few people are in more than one fellowship, I know. So I know like I'm not in Al-Anon, but I could probably benefit from it because my mum was quite an alcoholic drinker for a period of time. And I mean, there's an argument to suggest I could be in CA as well, which is Cocaine Anonymous. But really, I only ever used cocaine to facilitate more drinking and to avoid blackout. I honestly thought as the smartest person in the room, I'm like, the problem isn't drinking. The problem is that I black out. And so I know I'll start taking cocaine and that will stop the blackouts. And then I can drink for longer, but I won't be able to sleep. But that's all right, because I can drop a Xanax. And at that point, part of you has to be going, this seems like an awful lot of worry and trouble just to get through the night, doesn't it? I have a lot of compassion for that cat. (laughs) (laughs) We've all been there. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of compassion. Well, I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? 
if I could give them a physical gift, it would be another version of them, another one of them. Like, here's two of you. We all could use two of us. But if I can't give them a physical gift, it would be this. And it's something we all talk about all the balls that we have to juggle. And it can be exhausting and it can be stressful and we worry about it and all the rest of it. And I always try and think some balls are plastic and some balls are glass, right? The plastic balls, you can drop, they'll bounce. You can pick them up later. They're fine. So just know what your plastic balls are. Things like saying you're going to bake fucking cakes for the PTA. Definitely a plastic ball. I don't care if you let down the PTA. We don't care. That's fine. Making sure that you pick up your kid from school. A glass ball. Yeah, don't drop that one. Don't drop that one. But you can put that glass ball down and give it to somebody else for a second. You can go, do you know what? I can't do this. Can you do this for me instead? So I think it's that idea that you don't have to juggle all the balls all the time. You don't have to keep them all in the air. Some of them you can drop, some of them you hand over. And really taking time to think about which balls are which is really important because actually the glass balls, there's not that many of them. Exactly. So true. And clearing the fog of anything else like you and I have done that might be going on really helps you to do that. Yeah. But the other thing is if somebody is worried about their drinking, if somebody is sitting here going, I'm worried I've got a problem or I know I've got a problem, please, please, please try. Just try AA. Do a Zoom meeting. I don't care what you think you think of it or what you've been told about it. Do a Zoom meeting. It's a really easy way to get into it. People don't rush up to you and they're not really kind. I remember somebody said, I went to an AA meeting once and I hated it because everybody was really kind to me. Yes. People are very, very kind. Very kind. And really, when you go to an AA meeting, you just want to slide in at the back and not be spoken to. So on a Zoom, you can do that and just listen, just give it a chance. And if that's not the right meeting for you, try another meeting. Because if you're an alcoholic, you wouldn't go to one pub that you didn't like and go, well, I'm never going to another pub ever again. You'd go and find another pub. So if you don't like one meeting, go to another meeting. There are millions of them all the time, but please, please, please give AA a chance. It's free and it's brilliant. And there's lots of people out there who are monetizing sobriety. And I just think that there are free options that you can go for. 100%. I completely agree. And where can someone, obviously we know that you hang out and are hilarious on TikTok and Instagram, but where else can someone learn about you and get the book, which is incredible? Thank you. So my website is notsosmugnow.com and you can buy the book that you can buy a signed copy there. But if you want to buy an unsigned copy and save your pennies, which frankly, I mean, why wouldn't you? The best place is Amazon. And I know people hate that, but actually when you're an author and when you're an independent author that nobody really cares about, actually Amazon is the best place for people to buy it because those reviews and those ratings really make a difference. Yeah. And leave a review if you love Kat and if you love her words, if you love the book, leave a review. It does make a massive difference, doesn't it? It makes a huge difference. You can buy it from independent bookstores. And of course that's brilliant too, but actually if Amazon's easier, then justify it by knowing that it really helps us as authors. So yes, you can buy it on Amazon. You can buy a signed copy on my website, notsosmugnow.com. You can find me at notsosmugnow on TikTok and Instagram. And I've got the podcast as well, which is You're Never the Only One. We're just finishing up the first season that's coming back in January. But yeah, go and give that a follow as well. Oh, it's been an absolute joy. Thank you for your humility and your honesty. I think so many people are going to get so much out of this chat. So thank you so, so, so much. Thank you, Zoe, for having me. I really appreciate it. And I love your podcast. Honestly, I was so excited when you asked me. Oh, thank you. It means the world. 
So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. 